0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Before we dive into the message, uh, I wanted to take a moment and let you know that uh, our, our goal and ultimate vision and mission For us gathering on Sundays and us being a church, is that you and I, as individuals and collectively, would be formed more and more into the image of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so there's different things that we do to help form and shape us, rhythms, habits. Some of those look like when we gather and we sing these songs and when we pray together, even what you just did is intentional to build relationship and to get outside of maybe the relationships you might know to help build community. One of those disciplines is the the discipline and the practice of giving or the practice of generosity. It's one of the ones we see all throughout the scriptures in the Old and the New Testament as something that God continues to invite his people into to look different than the world. And that when we engage in giving and generosity, a few different things happen. One, we change. And secondly, the world around us changes. We change because it helps us release the grip on our lives when it comes to finances and materialism. It reminds us that God is our provider. He's our Father. And so there's something radically that transforms in us when we engage in this practice. And secondly, what God then does with that, similarly to the five loaves and the two fishes, he takes what we give and he does more with it than we ever could imagine. He helps bring redemption and helps tell a story of shalom and peace in the world. And so I just want to let you know that this all exists, not just because people volunteer and serve and prepare, but because people give that we set the table is kind of an analogy that we like to use for people to be able to come in and hear about Je- uh, to hear about Jesus, but also that we're able to set the table in our apartments and in our homes for people to come and gather, that we're able to set the table for our partnership in Mexico, for those in our community who maybe not have access to the resources that we have. And all of this is because God's people respond like him. So I wanted to just let you know that if you, have not done that before, that's not been a part of your worship, a part of your spiritual journey, I'd highly encourage you to do that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, and maybe this at one point was a part of your discipline, and maybe it's kind of fallen off or something that's kind of in the back of your mind, I would encourage you to re-engage that. Again, as a, as a part, as an act of faith. And then for us as a community, just to be able to do that. And there's a few ways you can do that. I think there might be a giving slide if we can pull up. Um, you can go to our website. There's a generosity box in the back. These are all ways that we can engage that. Um, I know even around this time, uh, generosity is specifically stirred up within me because we're around the incarnation of Christ, the giving of His Son to earth. And so I just want to just take a moment before we dive into the message and just pray that we as a community would continue to be those who follow Jesus in our generosity, not just with 10%, but with all of it. Say, Lord, all of it's yours, and that we would live in such a way that honors God with that. Would you just bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you so much that when we talk about generosity, there's no act or response that would ever equate to what you've given to us the generosity is first and foremost something that we've been recipients of and father i ask that as a church of people who are trying to see our lives become aligned with the person and the kingdom that you bring what i pray that we would increase in generosity Lord, we would increase our trust of you. Lord, that we would increase our ability to reach outside of these walls in terms of bringing hope and redemption to the world around us. So Lord, would you take what we give. We do it joyfully. We do it as an act of trust. And would you go and take and expand that in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, also, you'll notice as you're leaving, there is a card. If you'd like to give specifically to the building that we are renovating, just a quick update. We'll be doing a dinner in January or February just to kind of let you in on the full scope. But that building is purchased. It's owned. There's no mortgage on it. Um, $3 million have already been raised to renovate that building. And there's an additional $3 million that we're wanting to raise to complete it. And so even as you're thinking about giving or into the year, and you see God stirring in your heart, specifically if you are able to go over and join us, um, that that's something you can do now, throughout the year. We continue as a community, both in and downtown, to see God just put a flag in the soil of downtown San Diego to bring His light, love, and redemption to all around us. So I want to let you know that's available as well. Well, we're in a series right now, our Advent series, and Advent are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, called Wonder. And the idea is that we would have wonder re-engaged in our hearts. And that's just a question to stir you up. When's the last time you experienced wonder? When's the last time you saw someone experience wonder? You might even think about a kid in your life, your own child or niece or nephew, because they're, they're the experts at wonder, aren't they? Like they're, we are just, we're studying how children easily evoke wonder. Um, I don't know what you the, sometimes the favorite people in my life are the ones who live in a perpetual state of wonder. They're excited about the beauty and the awe of life. It's one of the reasons I like to hang out with Pastor Brian. I don't know if you've hung out with him very much, but this guy lives a wondrous life. Everything is big and imaginative. And one of my favorite moments is when we are in the, the ending stages of our interview process, we flew Brian out here from South Africa to San Diego, and he brought Judah, his son, with him. And on this trip, we had this idea, like, hey, let's let's go to Disneyland. Because he, he was just saying, like, in South Africa, to go to Disneyland is someone's, like, once-in-a-lifetime trip. It's your life savings. You you just go all in. You do this. And so to not only for Brian, but for Judah just to come and bring him to Disneyland was, like, this this really exciting idea, uh, exciting idea. And so we're like... We're excited to go to Disneyland. I'm always excited to go to Disneyland. But I've, I've been a few times in my life. My kids have been a few times in our life. And it's always wonders. It's always amazing. But there's something different about bringing someone who had a high level of anticipation, right? <laughs> that, this high level of, like, we've never seen this before. And specifically, the, the new Star Wars land, right? So we walk in there, right? And, and you see this little boy just looking around in this entirely new world, right? Going on rise of the resistance is coming out, mind being blown so much you can't help but scream. I'm talking about Brian, not Judah, <laughs> right? I'm just, just overflowing with wonder. And as I was getting ready for this for this sermon, I was thinking about that question. I, I've been thinking about people who have tutored me in wonder. And I was thinking about that moment, I was thinking about that day of just so much new, so much big and grand and beautiful being exposed. But all of that was compounded because of a season of waiting, a season of expectation. What is it going to be like? And that there's something that when we don't know how to wait and expect well, wonder actually begins to deteriorate. But as people, when we actually pay attention to the longings of our hearts, it provides greater potential for wonder to actually erupt when those moments come. And so this has a tremendous impact on our relationship with God. If we are a people who are expectantly waiting for His presence, then when we encounter the presence of God, it evokes something in us. And what's beautiful is that we have access to God all the time. Advent reminds us of that. So three things we want to present to you this morning. And this is what Advent represents. We're going to do this in a form of back and forth prayer, a little bit of a liturgy. where We're going to say, Christ has come, which is the first movement of Advent. We're going to add one. Christ is here now in this room through his Holy Spirit. And lastly, Christ will come again. And so this is our movement this morning in our teaching, but it's also our prayer in this season. So we're going to do a little back and forth prayer. I'm going to say Christ has come. You're going to say Christ is here now. And then I will end it by saying Christ will come again. Are you ready? All right. Christ has come. Christ is here now. And Christ will come again. Amen? Amen. With that, let's read our passage for this morning. If you're able or willing, if you'd like to stand to your feet for the reading of the word, we're going to pick up on a story of two individuals who are experiencing wonder for the first time. Mary and Joseph, after 40 days, are bringing Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And as they do it, they encounter a man named Simeon and an older woman named Anna. And their observation of who Jesus is, is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. This is from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 12. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought him in the child Jesus to do with him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and, praising God, said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace." For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled, or in other words, they had wonder at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel and the tribe of Asher. She was very old. Wouldn't you love that to be like your thing in the Bible? She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Christ has come. Christ is here now. And Christ is coming again. This story emphasizes all three of those themes. The first one is that Christ has come. It's looking backwards at years, centuries, millennia of prophecies that someday Israel would see a deliverer, would see someone come and to set things right, And it was with that anticipation that Israel moved through different moments of history, both good and bad, during monarchies and during oppression. At this point in Israel's history, they've undergone the oppressive rule of Assyria to Babylon to to Persia to Greece, and now they're underneath the Roman Empire. Things are not looking good for Israel. And the longer they wait the more oppression they feel, the more the prophecies are turning up the volume. People's anticipation and expectation for this ruler like Moses or like David was at an all-time high. This story finds itself in the temple. Now, the temple is a phenomenal archaeological, architectural feat that was accomplished by Herod the Great. You can still go to Israel today, and what you will see oftentimes is on the base level, the limestones are what were built over 2,000 years ago. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its scope is hard to even describe. But people would travel all around the world, not just Jewish people, to go and see this incredible building. Imagine it being like Times Square, crawling with visitors and tourists, looking up in awe. This is the scene that we stumble upon in this passage. It's not... It's no longer a quiet little manger scene tucked away in Bethlehem. You are now in the center of that region's metropolis, surrounded by people buying and selling and sacrifices, surrounded with with sights and sounds and smells of of the religion of the Israelite people. And Joseph and Mary have a 40-day-year-old, 40-day-old, not year, 40-day-old baby that they're traveling from Bethlehem north up to Jerusalem, and they're making their way through the crowds. And they find their way, and they they go, and they start the sacrificial process. In Leviticus chapter 12, it says, "'The firstborn son will come 40 days after, and you would buy a lamb. And that lamb would be bought, and it would be sacrificed, and he would be consecrated, set apart for the Lord.'" And then there's this tagline in Leviticus says, "If you cannot afford a lamb, you may buy two birds to sacrifice in its place." And so the fact that this passage says if two birds were purchased means that two things. Number one is that Joseph and Mary were living in abject poverty; they cannot afford a lamb. And so they it shows a level of a greater level of humility that Jesus was born into. The second one is a little bit more subtle, but maybe more profound is that by Mary and Joseph not being able to afford a lamb the only lamb that was present was their son we find this in John's gospel when his cousin John the Baptist sees him coming and and says behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it's almost as if Luke is trying to point out a very specific detail here that the only lamb that was present was not one bought or sold at the market, but one that was provided by God himself. Simeon is introduced as this righteous and devout man. We don't know much about him. We don't know if he's a priest. We don't know if he's old or young. Uh, There is this inclination that he's probably older. But in the telling of Simeon, there's one thing that he's told, is that he will not die... Until he sees the Messiah. Remember, anticipation is growing. And this is where we get our understanding that he's probably an older person. He's he's thinking about the end of his life. And as he's doing this, as he's waiting for the it says the, the wording here says the consolation of Israel, which is another word for the redemption of Israel or for the Messiah. It reminds us of something that I wanted to 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 point on before we dive into kind of the rest of what Simeon teaches us. Is that Simeon was not looking for God to show up in his own just like personal life to make him feel better. He was looking for something that was cosmic in scope. And I think this is an important point to start with, because oftentimes when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about your spirituality. Or mine. But one of the things I find great comfort in when I find myself in the scriptures is I'm a part of a much bigger story than my own. A healthy theology means that you are not the main character of the story that God is telling. It is a story that is spanning millennia. All cultures. All times. And Simeon's prophetic word is that he's about to witness not something that's just great for him. We're going to get there in a second. But this is something that's great for the world. It's, it's more significant, enormous, magnificent than you could ever imagine. And I think this is really important for us to realize is that Advent reminds us that the story you're in right now, surrounded by the circumstances, ups and downs, trials, victories that you have, it matters to God, but we also have to find comfort in the fact that we are part of a much bigger story. And Simeon teaches us that. He's waiting for something that is beyond what is is just his little world. This is something that matters so much greater. I think one one of the ways we see this is even the telling of Jesus' birth. If you you are following the Old Testament story of of Messiah-type figures, one of the great ones is Moses. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of these different kind of types. And Moses' story of rescue begins with him placed into a basket. It's interesting that word basket is only used two times in the Old Testament. One is for what Moses was laid in. The other time it's used for is the ark. Isn't that strange? Same Hebrew word. It's only used a couple of times. It's used for the ark, and it's used for Moses' basket. So Noah was placed into an ark. Moses was placed into a basket. And Jesus comes, and he's placed into a manger. And Luke, and he's doing this brilliantly, he's trying to tell us a story that's starting to stir up like, wait, there's a baby being placed, there's a salvific figure being placed into this container that's supposed to remind us of something bigger. And that's where Advent begins. Christ has come. The, the reality that Jesus has come into the world isn't just an amazing historical event, which it is that, but it is so much more than that. Jesus coming into the world is the answer of the greatest cries and longings that the world has echoed for all of his existence. Jesus has come. Christ has come. But the second thing Simeon teaches us is that not only Christ has come in a cosmic sense, Christ is here now in a personal sense. I love that... It talks about Simeon's posture. He says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Greek word here is sudekomai, and it's this active verb. It's, I think a lot of times when we hear the word waiting, it kind of like means that you're kind of like sitting back, twiddling your thumbs. It's passive. But for Simeon... This word is active, his waiting is participatory, there's something he's engaged with. The reason he showed up in the temple courts at that moment was the Holy Spirit prompted him. His waiting involved his own actions. And so you would imagine that Simeon spends, I mean, let's, let's just say the years, decades of his life, and he has this promise. He will not see death until he sees the Messiah, not just his Messiah, the Messiah for the world. And you imagine him walking into the temple every single day and the first, you get that prophetic word, imagine like two days in, you're just pumped. You're like, oh man, this is gonna be great. Like two years in, you're like, maybe maybe that was wrong. 20 years in, people start thinking you're wrong. You're probably Kind of a fixture in the temple. There's Simeon again, wandering around, looking for the Messiah. And, and years into this, you begin to start thinking well, what, what was Simeon looking for? He most likely would have been looking for a militaristic leader, someone coming in with an entourage, maybe, maybe a priest, someone with religious authority. Someone with influence. He's looking for someone he would have been like, oh, this this is it. And then all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary come in with the baby and the Holy Spirit whispers to Simeon, this is him. And because of Simeon's active waiting... He has the ears to hear the Holy Spirit, and he draws the infant Messiah into his arms and begins to sing praise and to bless prophetically Mary and Joseph. And this beautiful, it's the fourth song of the Nativity story, and he just breaks out in our preaching meeting. Being, I was given a devotional by Mark Slomka, and I was reading through it. It's so profound, just talking about Simeon, what he would have, rep- what he would have been feeling. I want to read you an excerpt from it. He says, "And so it was that his aging heart was beating fast as he scanned the temple court for a man of stature, a commanding presence, a self-authenticating bearing and authority that betrayed a messianic identity." Instead, his soul leapt within him when his gaze fell upon a nondescript couple that cradled a six-week-old child in their arms. Unbelievably, it was not the father, but the baby who commanded his attention. He took the child into his arms and looked through the veil of his flesh into the very face of God. This is not the first time that a godly prophetic figure was looking for a king and thought it was going to come through an older, more established version and was surprised by the fact that it was someone who was a child. Can you think of the other one? David. This is mirroring the story in 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel, a prophet, goes to anoint the next king of Israel, the king, that God has chosen, and he goes to Jesse, and he asks for his son, and Jesse lines up all of his sons, and all of them look the part. And Samuel himself, is like, it's got to be this one. And God's like, nope, no, no. Goes down the line, and, and God says no. And, and Samuel looks at his father and says, God said no to all of them, but he said to come to your house. Is there, is there another child somewhere? And Jesse's like, well, there's, there's the kid in the back watching the sheep. Samuel's like, bring him. And the Holy Spirit speaks through Samuel in that moment. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. By the way, that, that verse itself deserves its own sermon. But Simeon is the Samuel. He is the figure in the temple looking and God says, nope, nope, nope. And then the baby walks in and he says, this is him. And this is what I find so beautiful. Simeon brings the child into his arms. Just think about that for a second. How wild. Holding the one who spoke his very physiology into existence. And his prayer is, I can die now. (laughs) I've seen, and you know what I love is, he says, I have seen the salvation of the Lord. By the way, Jesus has not died on the cross yet. Because our salvation is not just the act of Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. And Simeon knew it. he just pronounces this. My eyes have seen salvation. I, my prayer, I've been working on this sermon a lot with Stevie. He's teaching it up in Encinitas. And our, our text message back and forth this morning is, may we have the eyes of Simeon. May we have the eyes of Simeon. Maybe see what you wouldn't normally see. Would we be able to look past what the the world wants, which is outward appearance? And would we be able to see something deeper, something in the heart, something that God is doing? And Simeon got the privilege of doing something that no one up to that point had been able to do other than Mary and Joseph. As he looks into the face of that child, think about the longing of every single significant Old Testament figure. Think about Moses. May I see your face? And God says, you may not, or else you won't be able to live. I'll show you my back. And Simeon gets to fulfill the longing of every single prophetic figure in the Old Testament as he looks into the very face of God, holds him in his hand, This is Emmanuel, and and this is what is so profound. One columnist I was reading this week said, Simeon provided a striking visual of not just meeting Jesus, but receiving him unto himself. As he gazed into the brand new eyes of the ancient of days, Christ for him went from being God with us to God with me. That is the beauty of the Incarnation. It is God with us. It it, it is more grand than you can imagine what this this moment means. And it is at the very same time God is with me. It, it It is not one or the other. God is not just intimate and personal. He's not just sovereign and powerful. He is both at the very same time. And as we look at the eyes of Simeon, he begins to start speaking to Mary. And he says that your son will cause the rising and the falling of many. Meaning your son is not neutral. It will reveal hearts. Jesus has never been neutral. He does something to us and he asks something of us and if we think that jesus is just an idea a theory an option we have not yet beheld jesus because jesus asks something of us and simeon tells mary this now this is this is important at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he says, I have taken a careful account of these things. Meaning, Luke was not a disciple. Luke was not there. Luke is a historian. He's interviewing people. Most likely, guess who he's interviewing about this scene? Mary. This is why we're getting such an eyewitness account of this, this event. Luke is most likely sitting down with the mother of Jesus, who at that time was probably in Ephesus underneath John the Beloved's pastoring. And he sits down with her and says, tell me about his birth. And she begins to start talking about the the visitation for her and the shepherds coming to meet her. And then she starts telling, and then we went to the temple. And we walked in and all these things going on and this man named Simeon comes up to us and he knows, he knows that this child is the Messiah. And then, and you can almost imagine, and excuse my pastoral license here, but I wonder if she started remembering the prophetic word that was given to him but also given to her when he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Mary never forgot that prophetic word. As she watched her son, 33 odd years later, be pierced with a sword, she knew in that moment she herself was pierced as well. She never forgot that. The same way that we want to have the eyes of Simeon, we want to have the ears of Mary. We want to remember the things that are spoken to us about our Lord and our Savior. And Mary takes these things, and she says that she was, in, she was amazed. She marveled. She was in wonder about what was being said about her son. And at that very moment comes the third character, is Anna. Is Anna, we know a little bit more about her age. We know that she was, got married, and at that time probably would have been early teenage years, let's say 13. She was married for seven, so she was 20, and then her husband died. As she becomes a widow, the text is unclear whether she stayed in the temple for 84 years or whether she was 84 years old when this happened. Either way, it's a long time to be in church. If you think my sermons are long, <laughs> like Anna was there for minimum 64 years. It said every day. Did not leave the temple talk about having an active waiting and it says at that moment she comes up to this moment where simeon is prophesying over this child and his parents and it says that she goes and she starts telling everyone who, which means not everyone got to hear, everyone who was waiting for the redemption of Israel. And I love that little side note that Anna didn't just, just didn't get a blowhorn just being like, listen up, Messiah over here, corridor number two, come see. She knows who's been waiting for the redemption of Israel, and she goes and tells them. He's here. Anna, another note on Anna that I found incredibly profound is that Luke calls her a prophet. The Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary, only identifies seven different women prophetesses. Anna's one of them. So by Luke calling Anna a prophet, I want to keep in mind what's happening in the timeline of history of Israel at that moment. It says that they had been without a prophet for 400 years. And then there's Anna. Never thought about that before. Anna is the prophet who breaks the silence. And I'm I'm amazed this year more than ever at what a prominent role women play in the nativity story. It's Mary, not Zechariah. In the genealogy, it's Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. In the temple, Simeon, we don't even know what he does, but Anna, we know, is a prophetess. Like What what significance that Luke is giving to these female figures in, in in a time in history that was high on patriarchy and low significance for women's role. But here is this woman, Anna, who for all of us, again, is a hero for so many reasons. Think about this. You're 20 years old. Your husband dies, and you have a few options here. Not many, but you have a few. We don't know much about Anna, but we know she's from the tribe of Asher, who was the most affluent tribe at that time. They were affluent because they were the ones who sold oil. We know her father's name, which probably wouldn't have been a prominent figure in that time, Penwell, And so there's, she had an option at that time to do one of two things. One, she could have went back to her family of origin and probably would have been very well taken care of. She was young enough that she probably would have been remarried to someone else in the family who would have welcomed her in to be a part of their family. But she had another option where she could have been so racked with grief that she could have spent the entire life trying to work through that pain. And in the midst of all of those options, she says, I'm going to go to the temple every single day. That is my life. My life from here on out is I will fast and pray and worship in the temple. By the way, she was not even allowed into the inner courts of it, but that didn't bother her. She was there, and because of her dedication to pay attention to what God was doing, year after year, she too was able to be a witness to the greatest moment in human history. And her response is she went and told every single person who was waiting for the redemption of of Israel. Which makes me think that as a church, maybe we should be praying for the eyes of Simeon, for the ears of Mary, but for the mouth of Anna. That this Advent season, we go and we tell every single person who's waiting for the redemption of this world that Jesus has come. You might not be like, I don't really know anyone who's looking for the redemption of Jesus, now for, or redemption of our world. For those of us who follow Jesus, we know that that comes in fullness the moment Jesus comes back. That's the third movement of Advent. Christ is coming again. There's a longing. There should be this dissatisfaction. There should be this awareness that the world is not as it should be, and that doesn't shock us because we're still waiting for his return. And this would be my encouragement to you. Don't take this so literally that you're just looking for people who are looking for the second coming of the Messiah to talk about Advent to. My inclination is this. If you know any certain person in in your sphere of influence in your world who is waiting for redemption, period, they may not know it, but they're waiting for Jesus. If their life is not as it should be, they may not know it, but what they're waiting for is not just a change of circumstances, What they're waiting for is Christ. And if you ever encounter someone or if you're here this morning and you're like, life is not how it should be. There is brokenness in me or around me, circumstantially, physically, financially. There's something that's out of order. What you're waiting for is what the Jewish people call shalom. Everything plays back in its right order. And that word shalom is peace. And the prophecy about Jesus is he's our prince of peace. He is what put things in their order. And he inaugurated that at his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, but that will be fulfilled at his second coming. And so as a church, we join in with the saints and with the Holy Spirit, it says in Revelation, when we say, come, come again. We're waiting like Anna. We're waiting like Simeon. We're thankful you've come, but we're saying, would you come again? And in the meantime, may we have the eyes of Simeon that we would see you here among us right now in this very moment, and that we would be able to profess like Anna to the world around us who understands that there is something wrong and broken in the world, that there is an answer, and he's coming, and he's coming soon. And the reason why I, my own heart has been stirred this week is I, I have found myself surprised at how often I'm not thinking about the second coming of Christ. When for the early church, 2,000 years ago, it was always at the forefront of their minds. Read the epistles. It's in all the letters. He's coming soon. One of the reasons I believe the early church was so effective was not because they had all these charts and graphs to figure out when he was coming, but they just lived like they knew he was. That is our example. Jesus is coming. My friends, can I say this again to you? Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. And he's coming soon, just the same way that he came then. He's looking for those who are looking for him. May we be a people... Whose hearts are living in active anticipation of who he is. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come join me. And as the worship team comes up, I'd love to, I'd love to sing that song hallelujah again. Is that okay? And for us to to find ourselves engaging in worship, thinking about those three beautiful realities, my friends, Christ has come. He came. My friends, Christ is here now, right now. He's not here in this room because there's a worship band or a microphone. He's here now because, A, He's everywhere. His Spirit is everywhere. But secondly, He uniquely dwells amongst His people as they gather together. He is in our midst. And thirdly, my friends, He's coming again. He's coming soon. May we live in a response To Advent, would you stand to your feet with me? Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Jesus, we give you glory and praise that you have come. You are here now through your Holy Spirit and you will come again. May we have the eyes of Simeon and the ears of Mary and the mouth of Anna. Lord, I pray that we live in active waiting and anticipation that would stir up wonder in our hearts. Re-enchant our hearts this morning. Jesus, come and make us alive. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.